At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Tarek Al-Musa, that's our guest today, and he's a lot more than just the star of the hit HGTV show like Flip or Flop. He is also a thriving businessman. He's a two-time cancer survivor. He has dealt with profound challenges, embraced opportunities. He's a devoted husband and a father. Today, Tark is going to open up about a transformative chapter or two in his life that helped shape the journey forward. Join us to hear about the peaks and the valleys of how he navigated the distressing subprime mortgage crisis of the early 2000s, pivoted into the intricate dance of flipping houses and overcame multiple personal and physical and health challenges along the way. It's really an amazing journey that this individual has been on, who he has become, what he has learned, and what he has to teach the rest of us, not just about real estate markets or flipping houses or making kitchens look just right, but about living our lives well. It will inspire you to find opportunities and moments of struggle, to persevere through challenges, and to cultivate a mindset that transforms adversity into a catalyst for personal and professional growth. So buckle up, get ready for the ride, as I introduce to you my friend and now yours. His name is Tarek El Musa. Tarek, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks for having me, John. I'm excited to be here today. Well, man, I feel like I'm already on a, with a friend. So uh, for those who don't yet know you, they haven't read your book, maybe they don't follow you online, or maybe they haven't somehow seen your work through television. If they were to meet you randomly and say, man, Tark, I, that name sounds familiar, dude. How, how do I know you? What would you say? Well, I am the world's most known house flipper, and you can find me on HGTV. <laughs> and then they say, I, I don't have cable. How else would I have known you? What would you say then? Oh, well, I've been in all these different media outlets. Sometimes for good things, uh, press, promotion, my shows, sometimes bad things. You know, I'm a two-time cancer survivor. Uh, I went through a very public divorce. I had an awful back incident, which required surgery. Well, when they see you, they also see a reflection of where you came from. I'm amazed by your backstory. And so that, if you don't mind, man, I'm, I'm going to roll the tape away on back to uh, to your parents. Can we spend some time first talking about your mom and then talking about your father? Your mother sounds like a most amazing individual. Yeah, she, she is. And, and honestly, John, you know, my entire journey has been about proving the entire world wrong of what we are and what we are not capable of. So every single day, that that fire, that drive comes from proving that as people, anything really is possible because we only have one shot here. And I'm a big believer that we got to maximize this opportunity. We have to enjoy this opportunity. We have to live our life to the fullest. And, and I've learned the only way to do that is to chase your dreams and, and go after things you love and be around people you love. So yeah, mom, mom's fantastic. Tell me about your mother's origin story. The, the fact that ultimately she would meet your father is nothing short of a miracle. But to tell us about your mother. Yeah, so my mom's from Europe. Uh, she grew up in Belgium in a, a town right outside of Waterloo. There was a, a major battle there with Napoleon many, many years ago. So from my grandparents' house, you could actually see the hill where the battle took place. And she was 19 or 20. She got a job as a flight attendant. 
and she ended up taking a job going to the Middle East. And actually, that's where she met my dad. Nabil. Yeah. Talk about dad. Yeah. So Nabil El Musa, also known as Bill Arnold. My dad did take my mom's last name and my mom did take my dad's last name. So she was a flight attendant. She ended up in Cairo. One night she goes out with the rest of the flight attendants, sees my dad at a bar. Uh, they start dating. Uh, at the time, it was during the, the Civil War in the Middle East. And, and he, my dad was in Cairo. And my mom was visiting him. And out of the blue, a rocket hit their apartment while they were in the apartment, blew up the kitchen. They fled the country. On the way out of the country, they were held a hostage by like 13-year-old kids with machine guns. And they were Catholic. And then it was a Muslim family took them in and hiding. And then eventually they made it to Europe. And then from Europe, uh, they moved to wonderful California, and they started off in South Central LA. Why leave Europe? There already it seems like they've they've made some difficult moves together as a young couple, and then to make this move across the ocean, all the way to the United States, all the way to California. Just in reading that in your book, it sounded like a long way to go. You know, it, it is a long way to go, but you know, this country is about opportunity, and. It's about creating opportunity. It's about giving opportunity. And that's why there are people all over the world fighting tooth and nail to be here. You came early into their life in more ways than one. You were born premature and it was not an, an easy early childhood for you. Yeah. So I came out earlier than expected. I think I was, I was five pounds, a couple of ounces. When I was born, I was in the intensive care unit for a few weeks. Uh, seven blood transfusions. Uh, I had jaundice. My my lungs were failing. Actually, as a baby, they had to give me some type of an injection. Uh, it was it was in trials. It wasn't even fully approved, and it ended up working because here I am. <laughs> yeah, it was a wild experience. And then my mom tells me they also told her that I had cerebral palsy, uh, and they also told her that uh, one of us likely might not make it. And she had to decide who was going to make it, and she chose me. Fortunately, we both made it. But it's not easy for her, for your dad, or for you. You talked about they thought you might have cerebral palsy. They thought for, for certain you had some type of palsy. You certainly had some type of tics later on. What what was the cause of that? And, and how did that show up in your life? Throughout my life, it's, it's just been a really big struggle. Nothing was ever determined uh, where those tics came from. But I had a lot of uncomfortable tics. It caused a lot of issues for me as a kid. Uh, other kids would make fun of me. I would shake my head. I'd snort my nose. I'd twitch my arm. My, my, my football coach would say, hey, Tark, you want a million bucks? And then he would shake his head at me. You know, as an adult, looking back, it really hurt me as a kid. But I always say you grow through pain. Um, but I've been diagnosed a lot of different things, ADHD, bipolar, you name it. I've been diagnosed it. And I haven't really found peace in my life uh, until the last, you know, I would say five or six years. I, the last five or six years, I, fi I finally found my peace. Mm. I want to come back to that piece because I think so many of the folks who tune in to our podcast tune in because they're longing for that piece. And I think so much of the dissension we read about in papers and hear about on news is because people haven't yet found that piece. We'll come back to that momentarily. You talked about ADHD. It's something you and I both have been diagnosed with and both somewhat struggle with, but also use as our superpower. Uh, how How is ADHD difficult for you as a kid but also how has it been beneficial to you as a both a child and now as a man yeah so adhd has been the um the best gift to my life and the worst gift to my life you know i, I think back in my early childhood i was always in trouble i was never a good kid i was always told i was bad i was always in timeout i mean in kindergarten my teacher she put me in the back corner of the classroom around a cardboard box throughout elementary school i, I spent most of my years sitting outside of classrooms and then they would send me to the office and then eventually the office didn't want me anymore so i spent a lot of my childhood actually sitting out on the playground alone and uh, it was very lonely being an adhd kid all alone on the playground just counting ants and that was kind of my life and as time went on you know i was always all over the place and i was always like a dreamer and a big thinker and i was always moving fast and i, I would always make things happen i would always get things done and then as an adult my ADHD gives me some obsessive traits. And when I find things I like or find things I love, I become super hyper-focused. And I'm a guy that can sit there and focus and work on something for days and days at a time with no distractions because I'm so obsessed with what I'm working on. But And, and that's one of the gifts of ADHD. But at the same time, it can give you those obsessive thoughts on things that aren't good in your life, right? And then, you know, that caused me to, uh, to have a lot of anxiety throughout my life, which created a sleeping disorder, which I solved through alcohol, which created an alcohol disorder. So 
I was always trying to fix myself and I was always self-medicating. And I, I didn't start the ADHD medications until I was 17 years old. I, I had just gotten out of juvenile hall and I got tested. They said I had ADHD. So I started taking this medicine called Dexedrine. I mean, it felt like overnight, I, I felt different. My, my GPA went from a 2.0 up to a 3.8. So my grades were amazing because I was able to focus on things I didn't want, on things I didn't like, right? Right. But then the side effects of that medication, I was like quiet. I was a zombie. I wasn't as energetic. And then what happened was when I was 18, the doctor told me if I wanted my ADHD medications, I had to continue to see the doctor outside of my parents making me. But of course, I was 18 years old and I didn't want to do that. So I didn't realize this actually, and this isn't even the book. I didn't even realize this until recently, but here's what happened. So I got off that ADHD medication and the two years after I got off, my life was awful. I, yeah. I went downhill so fast. I mean, from the day I graduated high school to six months later, I had gained over 50 pounds. I had these deep purple stretch marks on my sides. I had these love handles. I was depressed. I was drinking all night. I'd wake up at two, three in the afternoon. I'd start drinking at four or five. I'd, I'd, get, I'd end at two, three in the morning. And, and I was in this vicious cycle of self-medicating, trying to relieve the pain. Mm. Some of that's in there, but not all of it. And yeah. uh, I think all of it, it should be part of your story because it, it informs, it, it allows us to celebrate even more so the life that you built into. Like when you hear how how far it came down before it built back up again, it's it's a remarkable story, Tarek. So you you had a lot of interesting jobs throughout your entire life, but even in particular during that difficult span right there, everything from well, I'll ask you about them. T-shirt company. What did you learn about building a t-shirt company? All right, so I was always entrepreneurial. So at 15 years old, I wanted to start a t-shirt company. I called it Subliminal Clothing Company. So me and my friend, we created the logos. We found a print shop. We did all this. And I went down to the courthouse in Santa Ana, filed the paperwork, printed all these shirts. And then we got a piece of paper. I can't remember who sent it to us saying a cease and desist because there was another company with the same name that filed the paperwork properly, <laughs> which I didn't. So they put us out of business. Next thing you know, I'm 15 years old. My life savings and t-shirts that I can't sell. I think they're still in my mom's garage, actually. <laughs> All right, man. So we're going to go through one by one, talking about the lesson you learned by doing the work. What about working at a pizza joint? Wow, working at a pizza joint. So uh, working at a pizza joint, I learned that entertaining people is very important. I was a delivery driver. My friend was a cook. And you know, we would actually take the dough, slap the pizza, spin it. And as time went on, we got better at it. And eventually we started throwing shows in the restaurant. So people would come in with the kids and we we're 20, 25 feet away uh, throwing pizza dough to each other. So I actually, I enjoyed delivering pizza because I got to drive around, listen to music, but I had a lot of fun entertaining people. Well, it's funny. You'll, you'll probably use that with the next job I was going to ask you about, which was the Medieval Times restaurant. And, and by the way, for the 11 people somehow do, who do not know what that kind of job is, what kind of job is that? And then what did you learn in doing it? All right. So medieval times is an arena that's indoor where they act like it's the 13th century. There's like knights and horses and this and that. And it's like a medieval tournament jousting, things like that. So it might as a server, my section had 30 people. So my job was to serve 30 people. But it was a great job because I would work a three hour shift and I'll never forget. I'd make one hundred and twenty dollars in three hours where I wasn't making forty dollars an hour anywhere else. Craft Beer Company. Oh my gosh, the Craft Beer Company. All right. So the audience knows where we are on, on the timeline. We're like at age like 19 now. So we, we got a long way to go, people. Hang on for it. Yeah, we, we got a lot. We're not even getting started yet. So at 19, but by the way, my first day on the job, I had never been a server in my life. I'll never forget walking down to everybody with this huge tray of beer and soda, all these pitchers. And guess who dropped all the picture? The pictures. I'll never forget. It hit the floor. It exploded all over the crowd. I was like, "It's part of the show." <laughs> so then I went from that, and then actually, I I had to leave that job because I had my senior trip to high school, and they they wouldn't give me the time off, so I quit. And then I said, "Well, I don't want a boss. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I, I'm going to start my own company." So I was 20 years old now, and I, I had this grand plan to brew beer and sell it at parties because when you're younger, you go to parties. So I brewed all the beer. Tasted terrible and me and my friends drank it all. So I made no money. <laughs> so that didn't work out. Finally, we're about to hit something that does work out for a while. Selling knives, Cutco. Yeah. So this is where I learned I had a knack for sales. 
I started selling Cutco kitchen knives and I have to cold call people and set appointments and ask for referrals. And turns out I was good at doing that. I was good at selling knives. I think my average sale was about four or $500 and I was at a 30 to 50% commission split. So I was making decent money at 20 years old. Why leave it? Yeah. I mean, I was making decent money at 20 years old and this was like the year 2002. So there was no technology, no systems, no CRMs that I knew of. So all of my leads were in a sales book. One day I, I reached for my sales book and my sales book was gone. So literally in that moment, I put myself out of business because this book of business that I had worked so hard to build, I had lost and I just didn't have the energy to start over. But also I, I had a sign. I was at a Washington Mutual ATM in Cerritos, California. And, and I'm looking at my account balance. It's super low. And I, I, it's a true story. I throw my head up. I'm like, God, what am I going to do? Like one of those, you know? Yes. And as I look over, I see a crooked sign. And the sign said, wise old owl, weird name, real estate school. And then I had what I like to call a defining moment. A defining moment is a moment in your life that changes the trajectory of your life. So I thought to myself in that exact moment, well, if I can sell knives, I could probably sell houses. That's that's what that little voice told me. I immediately walked across the parking lot and st started taking classes to get my real estate license. Well, for the majority of your fans out there, they know that you figured out something that you actually ultimately were extraordinarily good at. But for the most part, none of the things we're good at come quickly to us. This thing took a little bit for you to figure it out. Yeah, when you I, first step in with the wise old owl, what are the things you're learning and how are you applying that? Yeah. So what's interesting is every single thing I got in trouble for growing up is the reason I'm successful today. Meaning sales is nothing more than asking questions. When do you plan on moving? Why do you want to move there? What's your time frame of getting there? And as an ADHD kid, that's always curious. I'm always asking questions, right? Which turns out helped my sales abilities. But as a kid, everybody was always telling me, you ask too many questions, be quiet, sit down, stay still. And it's a complete opposite of what actually creates success as an adult. Like they should have been answering those questions. They should have asked me more questions. They should have helped me mm. instead of boxing me in as a kid that was bothering them. So I know a lot of people out there, like they, they might be dealing with something similar to that. Well, no, this is a gift that you have. Like if someone tells you you're too loud or you're to be quiet or to sit down, don't listen to those people. Do, do what makes you happy. So um, why is old owl? So I ended up taking uh, the classes inside the office. We had to watch VHS tapes from the 1980s. It's not like the internet today. Took forever. All these ladies with these big brown jackets and these gold lapels. <laughs> Interesting experience. So then I get my license. And I ended up signing up for with Coldwell Banker in Fullerton, California. They had taken over like this old dingy medical office. Got into real estate. My first few months in the business completely struck out. Like I didn't know what to do. And I, and I was just holding open houses. Well, nobody would show up. I was waiting for the phone to ring and nothing would happen. And then one day we had this thing called floor time. So floor time is where you sit next to the secretary up front and you hope <laughs> that someone calls from one of the newspaper advertisements and nobody wanted to do these shifts. So I would take everybody's shift, hoping somebody would call. Nobody really called. So I'll never forget the day. I, I was sitting in the chair next to Carolyn. She had dark black hair. I was feeling anxious and I was thinking that, man, this real estate stuff, it's not for me. I look over to her and I like, hey, it's been fun. I quit. She's like, you sure? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go back to school. <laughs> That's what I told her. So I drive home. I, I change outfits, sit on the couch, start watching a game. Carolyn calls. She tells me, hey, there's a buyer here. They don't want to see a house. They want to buy a house. I'm like, what? <laughs> there's no way. This can't be real. So I'm like, oh, fine. And I remember talking to myself. This is your last shot here. Okay. So I got dressed, went back to the office. Um, and I met a couple named Dan and Tina. Dan and Tina... One, they knew the house they wanted to buy. Two, they wanted me to write the offer. And three, in order to buy the house, they had to list their house. Hmm. So I go from like a 20-year-old kid knowing nothing with zero dollars to next thing you know, I'm working on putting a million-dollar transaction together. So I do the paperwork to list their house. I do the paperwork to write the offer for the house they want to buy. I go to the fax machine. I put it in the fax machine. I start typing in the number. And then it hits me. I said, we're in a hot real estate market. This real estate agent's probably getting 20 offers right now. 
So I was like, okay, let's think outside the box. How do we get this done? I'm a broke kid. I need money. I said, I'm going directly to the source. I, I ripped it out of the fax machine. I looked at the address and I drove to the, the listing broker's office. It was in Rhea, California at a really nice high rise building, way nicer than my Coldwell Banker building. So I go in the second floor, it opens up, gorgeous building. There's a girl up front, her name was Miley. I said, hi, I'm here to see so-and-so. And she goes, great, what time's your appointment? And I said, oh, I don't have an appointment. And then she starts laughing at me. And she goes, well, you can't just come in here and see so-and-so. And I said, well, why not? <laughs> well, it doesn't work like that. You need an appointment. But, you know, I was 20, so I was desperate. So I was like, please, you don't un understand. Like, he's going to be so happy to see me. I need 30 seconds. So I sold, I just kept selling. She goes, hold on. She goes to the back, comes back, and she goes, okay, he'll see you. So I'm walking down the office. I get to the last door on the left. And I and as I go through the door, I realize, oh, this is somebody. It's the biggest office in the building, all glass walls, trophies everywhere. And there's this big burly guy with a bald head and a big jet black goatee and a Hawaiian Tommy Bahama shirt on. And he goes, sit. I said, oh, yes, sir. And I was a kid. He goes, how can I help you? And I said, well, I have an offer for you. And he goes, well, uh, what property? And I said, the property he goes, stop. And then he pulls out a manila folder and he starts showing me all the offers. He's like, this one's better than yours. This one's better than yours. This one's better than yours. And I'm like, oh man, I'm dead in the water. And then he stops and he looks at me. He's like, here's what I'll do. If you come work for me right here, right now, I'm going to take your offer. And you got five seconds to make a decision. And he put his big old hand out. Five four, three. And I threw my hand out and I shook his hand and I ended up putting together a deal that made me $33,000. I couldn't believe it. I was 20 years old. I made $33,000. I was so excited. The escrows closed. 30 days later, I get this check, right? John, imagine I've never seen $33,000 in my life. Okay. I get this check. I go to my bank. I go to cash it. And they're like, we're going to put a hold on it. I was like, what do you mean a hold on it? I didn't know what a hold was. So I said, well, how do I not have a hold? They said, you got to go to the issuing bank. I get back in my car, drive to the issuing bank, and they gave me cash. So now I have $33,000 in cash. And instead of going home, I, I ended up going out to like a company party at, at a sports bar. And I didn't know what to do with all this cash. So I, I stuffed $33,000 in cash. Dude. under the driver's seat of my car and it was a it was a 1985 baby blue buick park avenue so i'm going to tell you what i did with that money are you ready this is how i made millions of dollars is it fair to say going from zero dollars to thirty-three thousand overnight might make someone feel like they're rich that works well, well i felt like i was rich so i was like well what do rich people do well, they drive nice cars. At the time, the brand new Cadillac Escalade had just come out and all the rap videos, and it was like the coolest car on the planet. So I go down to the Cadillac dealer thinking I'm going to get an Escalade, you know, $5,000 down. I ended up leaving with a new Escalade, but they, they required $25,000 down payment because I had no credit history. So I'm thinking, oh, it's fine. I got $8,000 left. <laughs> okay. Here's a couple of things I learned. One, the $8,000 didn't last. Two, I couldn't afford gas in the car. And three, I made 33000 But how did I make that 33000 and can I do it again? No, I don't know how I made it, and I couldn't do it again. So I was back to square one. In your book and in your work, you talk about the power of comps, not just when you're looking at real estate, but when you're looking at your life. Talk about why that matters. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's everything. Like the four-minute mile, for example. It was impossible until someone did it. Now like a million people do it, right? As humans, the way we're, we're wired, the way we're built, if we see someone do something, then immediately we feel like we can do it. An example of that is uh, Carrie Hot, the first ever uh, extreme sport athlete to do a backflip on a dirt bike. I remember the world went crazy. Today they're doing triple backflips, right? Because he did the first one. So I'm a big believer in learning from people that have done what you're looking to do. If you want to get healthy, learn from a healthy person. If you want to find financial success, learn from someone that has financial success. It's very important that we always surround ourselves with the right people that can help us get to where we want to go. Pete the best.
Yeah. And if I'm pronouncing any of these rank names wrong, please correct me. But no, it's, it's, it's almost like perfectly on the heels of what you're talking about. They're learning from others on what is possible and then imitating what they're doing. So Pete, what did you learn by hanging out with Pete? So what was interesting about Pete, because I met him when I was about 21 years old. He was 30 years old. And I remember everybody was scared of Pete because he was young and he was rich. So they were intimidated. And I was like, okay, I, I got to get to know this guy. One of the biggest things I, I learned from Pete is the importance of talking to people, the importance of follow-up, uh, and the, the importance of, of honesty and integrity. And those were things that he really, really lived by. And, and for years, I would watch how he operated, the things he did, and it really helped me. What about Brad Pearson? Brad Pearson. Oh my gosh, Brad Pearson. The big thing about Brad is he never, he would never put people in a box. Like I would, I was a real estate agent with like the craziest ideas. I'm going to go flip houses. I'm going to get a TV show. And instead of saying, dude, like stay in your lane, go hold an open house. He was always like, yeah, dude, go for it. Go get it. You can do it. And, and those are the cheerleaders we need because all day, every day, everything is telling us, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do this. And worse than everything around us, it's that little voice in our head that's saying, no, you can't do this. Right. But it, it's not true. And it's about quieting the voice. And, and proving that voice wrong through action. I think through Brad, you met Christina. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So talk about Christina. She's she's blessed you with some mighty things in your life. What what was it about Christina you fell in love with? Yeah, yeah. So you know we we have we have a great relationship today. We're co-parenting. Uh, Christina was funny. She had just started working for the company. She needed some help, so she ended up coming on my team. And it was me in this office with I think it was four of us in there. And it was her, her first day on the job. I'll never forget. I had her cold calling and she was like, I have to cold call. I'm like, you got a cold call. And she called an expired listing, which is someone that was trying to sell their house. It didn't sell. We tried to relist it. And the people, they hung up on her and she looked, I'll never forget the look in her eyes. So defeated. And I think this is the moment she actually fell in love with me. I said, watch this. I picked up the phone, called the same people back. Five minutes later, I landed an appointment and I showed her. It's not about getting lucky. It's about learning skills and practice. And I said, you just have to know what to say when they say what they're going to say, because they're always going to say the same thing. So as long as you know what to answer with, you're going to land appointments. So we went out on that very first appointment. In the middle of the appointment, the, the sellers look over and they point at me and Christina. They said, you two are cute. You should be together. And that was like our real first interaction was driving to that appointment. And that's really where it kicked off us starting to talk. And, you know, and the world was, knows what happens from there. The world does know what happened from there. You fell in love. You get married. You start this business. The business takes off. And then 06 and 07 and 08 happened. How, how did the financial crisis of those years affect you too? Well, this is the interesting part. And, and this is one of the, the big reasons why I, I really respect Christina. She got with me in October of 2006, October 9th, 2006, we decided we, we wanted to be together. Uh, and the day we decided we wanted to be together, we actually moved in together. Like we were inseparable. By December, I was broke. The real estate market was starting to, to crumble. I had to sell the house we were living in. The guy had sold the two foreclosed six months later. Um, I had to sell my cars and ended up driving my dad's like big like, rancher looking truck with roll up windows and no air conditioning and moved out of the house to this tiny little apartment. And Christina, she was always supportive. Like she never made me feel bad. She never put me down. So I knew I found a good girl. Mm -hmm. Cause like we were living the good. And then all of a sudden it's like eating top ramen, you know, and she was a team player, you know? So she was riding up and back down and, uh, staying by your side and yeah. together, you decide we're going to start flipping houses. And in the, like, I spent a, a decade flipping houses. It's work. It's hard. TV makes it look a lot easier than it is. It's so difficult. And in the middle of doing this work together, coming out of the crisis, you come up with this idea of why don't we not only do this work, but do it on television? Yeah, it, it gets better, actually. I actually came up with the idea before I flipped houses. I, I was at a, a real estate convention in Las Vegas. We got invited to sit in the very front row where all the VIPs sit because two people had to leave. At the break, all these big VIPs came up to me and Christina, hey, who are you guys? We haven't seen you before. And then I started talking to people. 
I met a guy who was on stage the day before talking about how he made 800,000 a year selling houses. And I was like, oh my gosh, how can you even make 800,000 a year? And then he told me that he had a local TV show. And I was like, well, what does that do? And he's like, oh, well, people recognize me. I'm like, okay, well, what is that new? And he goes, well, then they do business with me. And I was like, man, this guy, that's so smart. TV, who would have thought? And never in my life had I thought about TV. And in that moment, I didn't think about TV. So we leave Las Vegas the next day or the following day. And I, I can't stop thinking about this conversation. I'm sitting on the couch. We're living in San Clemente, California. Christina is, she's wearing black yoga pants. She has one foot up the stairs. She looks over at me. She says, you come into bed. And my mind's spinning. I said, no. She goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to get us a TV show. Just like that. And then she starts laughing at me. She goes, a TV show about what? I said, well, I don't know yet. And then I said, wait a second. We just bought our first flip last week. What if we flip houses on TV? She laughed at me again, told me to go to bed. She walked upstairs. I immediately went on the internet and I'm all about action. I literally Googled Hollywood production companies. <laughs> Websites came up and I just started sending emails. And, and that was the birth of, of Flip or Flop as you know it. Flipper flop started relatively inauspiciously, relatively small. Did you have any vision at all that 10 years later, the show would still be going on? Like, did, did no. you have that kind of vision for it early on? No, I, I didn't. I mean, I thought the fact that I ended up on TV was like the biggest thing in the world that, you know, I didn't want to get greedy and start wishing to be number one on TV. That just kind of happened. But I did not know it would take me that far. But here's the interesting thing. In the home video that I sent... Um, which I still have, by the way, I said a few things. I want to flip 100 homes a year. I did it. I want to teach people around the world how to do it. I did it. And three, I want to inspire this country to believe that anything's possible and I'm doing it. So every single thing I sought out to do before I did it, I've actually done now at 42 years old. Impressive. What, what was the best thing about that 10-year run? Oh, the best thing about the 10-year run was all the stories I heard from people who changed their life through real estate, who found success from watching my show or from following me, or all the people that found out they had cancer because of my diagnosis and my story. And it's about all the energy I've been able to give back into the world through the power of TV. Mm. You went through some difficult times during that decade. And while most of us can shut the front door and no one really sees what we're going through, yours was broadcast out to an international audience. So what, what was the hardest part about that 10-year run? Man, the, the hardest part, not hard anymore, but the hardest part is just reading awful, awful things said about you, lies said about you. I mean, I, I don't even know how it's legal for magazines to say the stuff they've said about me in the past. And that was really hard for me because I, I, I'm, I, as a human, I'm a giver, right? And as a giver, you can go so much farther, but givers, they, they get burned a lot and givers, they experience a lot more pain. So fortunately for me, I, I never stopped giving. And now I'm so used to that pain. It's no longer pain. It's a part of my life. And when I see hate or lies, I it doesn't phase me anymore because it's been so long. So I just don't even pay attention to it. You had a baby, I think, right before the show started. Yeah. Then you had a baby again four years or so into the, the show. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you, you know, you're raising babies, man. You're trying to stay married. You're building a big business. And then one of your viewers, I think in Texas, Ryan, Ryan Reed, uh, Ryan sees on air one day, something that she just sees as being different than what it should be. Will you tell our listeners and viewers who may have been yeah. all you as closely what you saw? Yeah. So I, I got an email from my production company it came from the network and the email said, hi, my name is so-and-so I'm a registered nurse. There's a lump on Tarek's neck. He needs to get it checked out. The thing is, I was <clears throat> clearing my throat like crazy for two years before that. And I had gone to my doctor multiple times and they told me it was because I smoked cigarettes or they told me because I had allergies and they gave me nose sprays. Nothing was working. So when I got that email, I said, okay, I'm gonna go to a different doctor. So I went to a different doctor. They took a biopsy. Biopsy came back as atypical, uh, meaning it might or might not be cancer. So inconclusive. Then we scheduled exploratory surgery. It was only supposed to be like an hour surgery. They're going to open me up and look around. They roll me in <clears throat> and um, I was in there for about four and a half, five hours. Mm. So the, the, the moment I woke up, I'll never forget, you know, I'm looking up, I'm kind of in a daze and I see Christina's face just crying on top of me. The tears are hitting me. 
first words that come out of my mouth is I have cancer, don't I? And she goes, yeah, yeah, you do. And I didn't know anything about cancer. I didn't know how bad it was. I knew nothing. So it was, it was terrifying. And then it actually was stage three thyroid cancer. So it was fairly far along and it had spread to my lymph nodes. So they had to remove a bunch of lymph nodes. Because of that misdiagnosis, we looked through my old medical records, me and my ex-wife, Christina, and we found that I had an irregular testicle exam a year before. So just as a precaution, we said, okay, we should go get this checked out. I'm, at, I'm visiting my post-op cancer doctor, and they had a last-minute opening to do an ultrasound down the hall. So I'm like, okay, I'll go. And I'm thinking nothing's wrong. I, I go in there and there was a guy doing the, the ultrasound and he was a surfer from Huntington Beach and I lived in Orange County. So we're just talking. And then, you know, as one of my superpowers of ADHDs, I, I know how to read the room. I know how to read people. Like I'm, I'm very in tune with emotions and I can tell something was throwing him off and his, his tone changed, his speed changed. And I asked him, I said, Hey, what's wrong? He goes, Oh, no, no uh, nothing. And I said, no, 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 something's wrong. You, you, you got to tell me. He said, well, I'm not a doctor. I said, no, I know you're not a doctor. He goes, are you in pain? If you're in pain, the emergency room's down the hall. Man, right when he said that, I, I, my heart sank and I, I knew something was wrong. 20 minutes later, I'm talking to a surgeon and I find out I have testicular cancer. Good. Yeah, so man, that, whew, that was a rough time. You know, um, I, was, I think 30, 31, young daughter, within months finding out I have two completely separate cancers and I, I, I thought I was done. What kept you moving forward during that season and then the season that's going to follow, which probably made that season even uh, seem easy compared to what you went through afterwards. Like when you go through these storms and you don't need to be specific because you've been through so many, but when you endure a storm, whether it's financial, health, relational moment of personal crisis, what keeps you going? Hope. Hope. I didn't mention this earlier. I worked so hard every day of my life like when i got the contract to do flip or flop i filmed the pilot in 2011 it was the third house i ever flipped in my life i was told it's going to take a long time if we get a series and the odds of getting one are very low weeks later i got a contract to flip 13 houses in 10 months on tv i have two problems problem number one i don't have any money how am i going to buy all these houses Problem number two, if I had the money, how am I going to buy all these houses? I don't really know how to flip houses. So I called my lawyer and I asked him, I said, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? He says, well, they can sue you. So I looked around my apartment and I said, they can have it. And I signed that thing twice. And I actually pulled it off by working almost 20 hours a day. Uh, But the reason I bring that story up is because I put my blood, sweat and tears into this. And I wasn't willing to just walk away from it after giving it everything I had for so much time. And I also knew if I didn't make it, I have my daughter, I have my wife, I got to take care of them. Meaning while I'm alive, I have to make as much money as possible. I have to become as known as possible. So when I'm gone, they're going to be taken care of. And, And that's the fuel that kept me going. You have mentioned the cancer. You've whispered this idea that you refer to as my ex-wife. And we co-parent. So I, I think the audience knows that the marriage that you found eventually will dissolve. And rather than spending an awful lot of time there or what led it led up to it or what you learned from it, at the very beginning of our interview, you said, John, my life has been up and down. It's been difficult. But about five years ago, I got free. I got clarity. I got filled. I got whole. Yeah. What changed? Rock bottom. Rock bottom. I mean, I I was at the bottom, bottom, bottom of those rocks. I was in the loneliest place you could ever imagine when I lost my family. I mean, it it took me to places I didn't even know existed. And it was a feeling that I didn't even know humans could feel. And it's a feeling that I, I will do whatever I humanly, whatever I possibly can to never feel like that away. And looking back, all the mishaps in my life most of it was caused by me Mm. and we gotta take responsibility for our actions sometimes and through my cancers and through my back surgery i was taking dilaudid i was taking morphine i was taking percocet i was high as a kite masking the paint like it was you know i was i was not a nice guy i was um i have a lot of regrets 
but at the same time like i was going crazy um my hormones were really off so you combine um my anxiety yeah my adhd my hormones being off mm. looking back it's like i was not not my life it's like a movie it changed yeah. who i was and i never ever ever thought my ex-wife would leave me never we were best friends so when she left me and, and uh, on, on top of this what the icing on the cake was after uh my cancers and all this bs i went through i finally started feeling good and then i hurt my back right after like months after and for a year um i was taking a lot of percocet morphine i lost 60 pounds you could see the bones coming out of my chest and then after that i was still i, was, I wasn't feeling good so then i went to uh, christina's doctor and this was the nail in the coffin actually they gave me um steroid injections testosterone so i was told that i was tired from my my testicular cancer which turns out that was completely wrong i was tired because my t3 and t4 were off because i had no thyroid so someone that's already a little hyper, you know, to get steroids into them. So I was taking steroids. I was taking, I was taking estrogen. I was taking fat burner. I was taking all this crap these doctors gave me and I was a monster. It wasn't even me anymore. Yeah. So looking back for quite some time, I was just not a good dude. And like, I understand Christina. I normally don't get emotional. No, man. I, so I'm just going to way in and um so they're filming a movie right now about my life and there's a man named jack buck who's a broadcaster in st louis and hall of famer he saved my life he came in when no one else did and kept showing up and showing up and showing up and encouraging and taught me how to write after i got out of the hospital and even when he was near the end of his life he gave away his crystal baseball that he received when he went into the hall of fame so he was like the best friend in the world to me yeah but i never felt worthy of it so uh, when he was sick with Parkinson's disease and cancer, week after week, month after month, I drove to the hospital repeatedly to visit him, but never went in. And then he passes away and I'm the guy who never stopped by to see my friend. And that broke me. And then the family invites me to the funeral and I don't go. I drive to the church. I see everybody walking in and I realize I don't belong. And I get back into my little cheap car, pull away from this lot and leave my friend one more time. So the, the reason I share that story is they're filming a movie right now about my life. And the scene they shot today, William H. Macy is playing Jack Buck and a guy named Joel Courtney is playing J John O'Leary. And the scene takes place at Jefferson Barracks where Jack is buried. And it is like the low point in my life, but it is the point that turns the entire movie around afterwards. Like you've got to not just get burned not just face rejection, not just get a diagnosis, not just come through the storm. You've got to ultimately wake up to what you did and your role in doing it better going forward. Yep. And so the emotion you're showing and the silence on this podcast and the tears that are dropping, man, uh, I've, I've been there. And why it's powerful in my movie and in your stories, because everybody listening to our voices today has been there too, if they're honest at all, yep. at all. So um, I love the fact that we're not talking about making money and flipping houses. We're talking yeah. about life and stupidity and rejection and mistakes and being mean and learning lessons and being, applying them going forward. That That is the human. Kind of, there it is, man. Being, so I, it's okay to be human sometimes. I've you know? I've really appreciated your vulnerability. Yeah. And I, that's awesome that you got a movie coming out. You're, I don't have to watch that. That's, that's very cool. <laughs> I didn't know that. I'll send you tickets. We'll, we'll go together, yeah, man. I'll have yeah. my arm around you the entire time and we'll wipe each other's tears. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So yeah, bottom line is I was spun out of my mind. I was drowning in depression, anxiety caused by all these different medical conditions. And I, I was not a good dad. I was not a good husband. I was not a good son. I was not a good human. I, I'm going to own it. I'm not making excuses. That's what I was. And because I was like that, I, I ended up on my own at rock bottom. That's usually the last chapter in most people's, in some people's books who get there. Uh, for you, it is the end of a painful chapter, but ultimately the beginning of a new one. So for our friends listening to your conversation right now and your boldness right now, if they find themselves there, the door is shut, the lights are off, the drapes are drawn, and there's no reason to continue forward. 
what, what would be your challenge back to them? Grab a piece of paper, grab a pen, and start writing down the names of everybody you love. Because it's not even about you. It's about them. For me, I hurt a lot of people. And I, I wanted to show everybody that don't give up on me. I'm, I, I'm, I'm coming back. And, and I have more to offer this world. And if someone's in that position, they got to keep fighting. Because for me, like, I've had moments in my life where I, 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 you know, I hate to say it, I wanted to end it. But you got to draw back to the history of your life. Think about happy times, things you did, because it's not going to be crap forever. This is just a moment in time. And if you can get through this moment in time, you got the rest of your life to rebuild, to chase, to dream, to love, to grow. Right. But if you don't put the work in now to get out of your situation, you're never going to experience everything that life has to offer. Mm. Man, I'm glad you wrote down the names of people you loved. And I'm glad you wrote down the memories that you'd already made that you loved. I'm glad you wrote down dreams that you could cast and chase. I'm glad you came through that agonizing period and you keep walking through it. On July 4th, 2019, you find a another reason to keep moving forward. Well, yeah. tell me about that briefly. After the divorce, I was living on a boat. I ended up living in a halfway house. And then I, I started rebuilding my life. And I was truly sad and dying inside every second of every day until July 4th, 2019. So, you know, I didn't get over my divorce in a week. I didn't get over it in a month or six months or a year. It took me four years. July 4th, 2019, 4th of July, back of my boat where I'm at a bar. And at the corner of my eye, I'm throwing a party. I see the most gorgeous blonde girl I've ever seen with these beautiful braids coming down the sides. I stop talking mid-conversation. I walk to this girl. I put my hand out. I go, hi, I'm Tariq El Musa. She goes, I know who you are. Immediately, the little voice in my head is saying, yeah, she knows who you are. You're, you're in. Good move. Good move. She knows your shows. And, and, and I'm feeling really cool and confident. And she goes, yeah, you asked me out two years ago immediately my the little voice says uh-oh retreat retreat and I said well where did I ask you out she says well Instagram I said hold on and I spun my back to her I looked she responded she had a boyfriend I turned back around I asked her you still got that boyfriend she said no so we carried a conversation uh five minutes into our conversation we're really connecting and this girl came over said something that bothered Heather Heather left I didn't get her number I didn't know anything about her she went back to the boat next to me I'm sulking in the wheelhouse. I look out and I see her on the front of the boat with this you know, good looking guy and she's laughing, throwing her hair back. And I had another defining moment. I said, I'm not going out like that. So I jump into the wheelhouse area and I find the horn and I lay on that sucker for like 10 seconds and Heather and the guy, they jumped because I scared the whole dock. I stuck my head out the sunroof and I told the guy to get away from my girl. One or two things was going to happen. One, she was going to like it, or two, she was going to hate it. Luckily for me, she liked it. So I got her number, first date, uh, so I think it was two weeks later, she cancels on me. I sent her one text message. I said, I promise you, I'm different than you think. You should give it a shot. Mm. That's, that's the message I sent her. And that's the message that said, okay. So she decided she would go on a date with me. Uh, we went on that first date. Four days later, we moved in together. Uh, our son just turned 10 months old and we got married uh, two years ago in October. Tarka Musa, I'm glad you are different than she thought. And you're different than I thought too. And uh, different in the best kind of way. Uh, I'm really grateful you made this time. We have seven questions that we ask every one of our guests as we get ready to wrap up our conversations together. I wish we had another hour together, but we've got about two minutes and 11 seconds, brother. So get your tennis shoes on. You're going to go for a run down the dock. Here we go. Let's go. Question number one, what's been the most influential book you've ever read? As weird as this sounds, it's a book called The Section 8 Bible. It's about real estate investing, about these two guys from Philly that started at zero and built a portfolio of 500 houses. Mm. It was the, the most inspiring book of my life. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I mean, I'm still pretty similar to when I was a kid. <laughs> I was happy a lot. So today I'm happy a lot now, but as a kid, I was just so excited about life and everything was so exciting. Um, as we get older, we lose that. Um, yeah. But I feel like I've gotten it back though over the last five, six years. If your home caught fire and all living things were out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one physical thing, one item, 
what would you grab? Family photos. I still have family photos. What would I grab from this thing? I'd probably go grab the car. It's expensive. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, they're all just material possessions. As long as my kids are okay, I'm good. If you could sit on a bench and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be next to? My grandpa. My dad's dad. Never met him. What's the best advice, whether it came from your father, your mother, your grandfather, a friend, a counselor, something you read in a book, best advice you've ever received is? If you practice, you can do it. What advice would you give yourself at age 20? I would go to see a mental health professional. Mm. Tark, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Man, started at the bottom. And teaching people how to go to the top. Tarek Al Musa, I'm glad you are different. I'm glad you started at the bottom. I'm glad you're teaching other people not only how to flip their life, but how to pull up others with them as they journey forward, man. This has been a blast. I appreciate you being honest and vulnerable and bold with our audience today. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Sorry I got so emotional. It doesn't happen too often, but... I'm a big fan of the fact that you have this movie coming out. I enjoyed this conversation way more than I was expecting. And I hope the audience really, really gets some good takeaways. Hey, listen, I did. And I, I love you, man. I'm grateful for you. Well, my friends, I'm thrilled that you joined us for the conversation with Tarek Al Musa. He reminded us during the conversation of the power and the possibility of pivoting forward in life. From an unfulfilling career to tremendous personal struggles, Tarek demonstrates that although the headwinds may be real, here's the good news, the foundation is firm and the best is yet to come. If you enjoyed hearing from one of your favorite HGTV stars, you're going to love the conversation that I had a couple years back with my buddies Aaron and Ben Napier of Hometown. Mom and Dad, shout out to you. I know you love their show. Using the motto, make something good today, Aaron and Ben remind us that rehabbing isn't just meant for houses, but for our hearts, for our lives, for our towns, for this world. Listen in to Ben and Aaron Appier on the Live Inspired Podcast. It's episode 116, way back then, baby. Or you can let your fingers do the walking right now. Cruise on over to my website. You'll find that at John. O'LearyInspires.com forward slash podcast. I want to thank you, as I always do, for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. I want to remind you, my friends, of a lesson you should have heard loud and clear during this episode, that the foundation is firm. The headwinds may indeed be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Embrace it. Pivot forward and live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.